Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Before we get started today, I want to welcome a new patron, a whore toff, Elizabeth George. I really appreciate your support and hope you enjoy the patrons' episodes and the thank you note from Prince Albert. I also had a lovely five-star review from Brad Hammond. Quote, Don't let Chris Fernandez Packham's smooth and mellifluous delivery fool you. Each one of his meticulously researched podcasts is filmed with the kind of human detail you simply won't find in most textbooks. He truly brings the Victorian age to life, providing the perfect blend of historical fact with a talent for storytelling. His enthusiasm for the subject shines through in every word. He delivers insights into both the larger-than-life historical figures we think we know, along with compassionate tellings of the stories of the everyday folks who shared the same world. This podcast has grown on us and has quickly become essential listening. Best wishes for continued success and many more listeners, Chris. End quote. And also from Robbo19, another lovely five-star review. Quote, This podcast is entertaining and educational. Well-researched, produced, and above all, engaging. Thank you for your time and effort. I very much appreciate you and the podcast. End quote. Okay, thank you both of you. I really do appreciate you taking the time and effort to leave me a review. Also, for those of you on Facebook, the lovely Petunia and Poppy have posted a link in the Age of Victoria podcast Facebook group to a YouTube video that I think you would all find fascinating. The video is of an old interview in the 1970s of some very elderly Victorian era survivors. There are some amazing insights anecdotes and memories of a lost age, although mostly after the Victorian era. It is striking how recently the Victorian era passed from living memory. I found a video on YouTube of an interview in 1977 with Mrs. Florence Pannell, who was born in 1868. So she was around 108 at the time and lived until 1980. Imagine that. She was born before the telephone and light bulb were invented and lived long enough to watch Star Wars. For a time, she was the oldest living person in Britain. And the three-minute interview was fascinating. It was only slightly spoiled because the interviewer appears to have been brain dead and in a hurry. So a precious window into history was lost. The last English Victorian to die was Ethel Lang, who was born in 1900 and died in 2013. But I find it amazing that Charlotte Hughes was born in 1877 
and died in 1993, living long enough to travel on Concord to New York on her 110th birthday. These links pop up everywhere. My mum was commenting on my post about Osborne House and casually mentioned, Oh yes, your great-grandmother went there when she was 18 to have dinner with the elderly Queen Victoria. So, one, that's awesome. And two, come on mum, seriously you waited till the podcast was nearly three years old to tell me that? Right, that's enough of the trivia. Today's show continues our theme of great changes, the history quakes. We started in episode 25 with the Industrial Revolution and the impact of coal. Today, we begin our series on railways. I love railways. An unhurried train journey is one of life's great pleasures. A delayed commuter train is a refined form of hell. The Victorians didn't invent the railways, but the seeds of the railways began to grow into trees in the 1830s and 40s. The Victorians turned the railways from a few miles of track with experimental engines to a vast high-speed artery around Britain and later the world. For today's show, I will essentially be focusing on England in those decades, the 1830s and 1840s. Even that packs in an incredible amount. There is just so much to say about railways in Scotland, Ireland, the USA, Canada, Australia and India. I can't do those justice in one show. Now, can you imagine the English and Scottish countryside? Try to picture it as it was from the time of the Romans up until the Battle of Waterloo. Throughout that time, you can imagine the green meadows, the thick woodlands, the heathland and the bracken-covered paths, perhaps the marshlands of the fens, or the sudden soaring of the great glens, maybe the sheep-covered valleys of Yorkshire, with fields separated by grey slate, and villages on steep hillsides, sometimes a river or a valley, sometimes the classic orchards of Kent, or the fields of hops for making beer. It was an agrarian place. Speed was limited. The rhythm of life depended on the needs of the communities and the demands of the local economies. As countryside gave way to town, foot and cart traffic increased. More rubbish would be noticed, along with more structures like coaching inns. Stagecoaches, rattling on the final legs of their journey, often the loudest noise you'd hear in rural life, along with the carts and the peal of the church bells, sometimes the blasts of a musket, or, if you're in the right parts of the country, the odd cannon blast from a garrison or a passing naval vessel giving a salute. In Wales there were valleys and mountains, with mines and factories as the Industrial Revolution began. When the railways came, they brought something radical. Not just a change in journey time, improved economic links, 
That's what the bird's eye view of history and economics gives you. In my opinion, the railways changed the land and how the people related to it. Suddenly, there was a noise that rang out across the country as the tracks spread out. Land had to be reshaped. Trees had to be cut, sleepers laid, cuttings carved out and valleys spanned. Places that had only seen buildings in timber, wood, plaster and thatch, except for the local church, might find themselves seeing a soaring railway aqueduct. It must have been like the second coming of the Romans. It sent out a message that said, This is progress. This is the power of our science and genius, made real with steel and stone, animated by fire. We bend nature to our will now and throw off her limits. That's one heck of a confidence boost. In my view, the change in speed fundamentally changed how people mentally viewed the environment itself. When you travel by train, you are separated from the environment you travel through. When you walk or ride a horse or go in a barge, you are aware of the landscape and feel a part of it. When you travel on a train, you feel the landscape streaming past you. There's a separation, a mental distancing. People and the land become a thing apart. If you move from a town to London on a train and then back, then you never need to visit the land between. Does it really exist? Railways require two essential pieces of technology. The first is the rails. They need to be made of at least wood or preferably metal. These were invented first and were relatively common. Carts could be put on rails and pulled by horse or canal barge or so on. It didn't take too long to make the next important step, which was to change the rails to a flat shape and put the L shape on the wheel. The second piece of technology is much more crucial, and that's the method of propulsion. That was where Britain was different from everyone who had gone before. Engineers in Britain no longer saw steam engines as toys or curiosities. They were machines to do work. First that work had been pumping the mines. Then gradually engineers had to come up with engines to move things on rails at the coal pits. In 1821 though came the event that we would recognise as the birth of the real railways. Engineer George Stevenson had been asked to build a railway line from the town of Stockton to the market in Darlington. In Kensington Palace, Victoria was still being hidden away from the world that the aristocracy hoped would never change. The Duke of Wellington was horrified at the very idea of railways, thinking they would encourage revolution no matter what he thought, or the establishment thought, in the Midlands of Britain 
engineers were going to shake the old world to its foundations. Not that the establishment were universally hostile. Many were excited at the idea of new investments and an end to the monopolies of the canal companies. The engineer George Stevenson opened the Stockton-Darlington line using two locomotives, the experiment and number one. They could pull 21 coal wagons, 25 miles at 8 miles an hour. For the first time in human history, huge, heavy loads could be moved overland without humans or animals dragging them. Each of those wagons weighed tons. And yet, humans could have them moved now with minimal effort. It seemed like magic. As we discussed in episode 25, Britain had broken the energy ceiling of pre-industrial society. Civilizations around the world would never be the same again. If you're a history fan or a student of logistics, you might recall armies usually move along the lines of rivers or the coast. These are called natural lines of communication. All those massive supplies needed by a Roman legion, for instance, were best moved by boat or barge. As I said in the last main episode, everything costs energy, and the cost of carrying supplies costs more energy. A soldier carrying supplies needs more energy from food to carry the extra food. There's always a trade-off. If you can avoid that trade-off by using a boat, then you are already out in front compared to an enemy who can't. The second best way, of course, is to move things by cart or wagon. You still have to feed the animals that pull the wagons, so there's an energy cost. But it is better than soldiers carrying things for themselves. Wagons really need roads, though, and historically, these have been of pretty poor quality. If you look at a lot of invasion routes and where battles happen, They cluster in similar places because the terrain filters people into those places. Valleys are better for battles than mountains or in the middle of the desert, sand dunes. Armies like to move near rivers, then move away to engage at strategic sites. River crossings, bridges, towns dominating valleys, all targets. British were making rivers, though, that could go anywhere, but they were called railways. They could carry loads that would have needed hundreds of horses and dozens of wagons. Supply lines could be run through areas that used to be difficult. A train doesn't care if you want to go uphill or over a desert. It just needs the engineer to plan the right tolerances and build it properly. Then it will do it over and over as long as it has fuel. And as a bonus, a railway track is always of good quality if well made, unlike roads. Eventually, these railways connect the whole of the continental USA, in some ways negating 
Britain's geographical strength, having lots of land near the coast with plenty of easy rivers to navigate. The British had been able to move goods around the coast on ships easily, giving an immense transport advantage. The railways helped recreate that advantage wherever they went. In a curious way, one of the keys to Britain's eventual downfall, as other countries built their own networks. Our series on railways at the moment is really only covering up to the 1840s mostly, and is focusing on the UK, because that's where the basic principles were worked out, although French engineers also made important contributions. Railways are really complex too. The British had to learn from scratch. They needed improvements in iron making, concrete manufacturing, surveying, engineering, mathematics, technical drafting, stone carving, fuel production, planning, legal systems, and even language. They needed breakthroughs in mining and tunnel building, especially as the UK lacks open prairies and has some formidable hill ranges or marshes right where you'd want a railway. Plus, there is of course the infamous issue of drainage in the wet British climate. Many of the bridges needed were colossal pieces of civil engineering that would require astonishing effort even today. Then there were the cuttings, the levelling of terrain, and the infamous tunnels. One extremely well-known stretch of railway was built down to Dover by William Cubitt in 1843. The technical challenges were enormous. The technology for the tunnelling needed was insufficient and the engines of the trains weren't powerful enough to go over the hills. So a massive cutting was proposed. Then the route came to an iconic section of the White Cliffs of Dover on the coast. That famous view, so beloved by films and newspapers, seemingly the eternal cliffs. The line was blocked by the famous projection of the Round Down Cliff. Cubit had the option of a tunnel for this stretch, but decided the best thing to do was simply remove the cliff. It had stood for hundreds of thousands of years, but now it was landscape that was in the way of progress. I'll go into the details of this in a later show on the practicalities of building a railway. I'm just telling you this now so you can see how ambitious the railway building work could be. What a massive impact on the landscape it had. As a bonus problem, of course, most of the associated infrastructure you needed to build a railway wasn't in the right place either. Even when a railway was built, it needed new hotels, signal houses, maintenance depots, coal sheds and much more. That might sound trivial, but the lines often needed thousands of men as workers to construct. Just disposing of the sewage for so many workers was a challenge. Many companies didn't even bother providing housing and contractors bitterly remonstrated 
with the companies, complaining that their workers were often left to sleep in tents. An early train wouldn't look anything like a modern train, and even the trains you've seen in films from the 19th century USA would be quite different from those very first engines and carriages. The early trains didn't even have a station with a platform. They often stopped and you climbed a ladder. Freight hauling trains had different needs and speeds to passenger trains, so needed different building techniques. Railways also needed sophisticated company structures, investment mechanisms, legal experts, new insurance, and even diplomacy on occasions. To say this was all new was an understatement. The English language didn't really have a way to talk about railways. Old words had to be used in new ways, or new words invented. Here's a description from an early traveller, a French priest. Quote, I took my passage to Manchester on that astonishing machine called Steamcoach. Fancy a bulky machine composed of two very large carriages joined together on the same line, the whole occupying in length a span of about 50 foot, each carriage divided by boards in three compartments or partitions, each partition containing six passengers facing each other and very comfortably seated on armchairs. Thus each carriage contains 18 passengers and the five together 90, independent of four persons destined to feed the steam and who go on at a rate of about 25 miles an hour. The steam is compressed within so narrow compass that the place where it is lodged is scarcely to be perceived and were it not for the thick whitish smoke which comes out from the large tube placed to the end of the machine which attests the existence of the gas below one would fancy to be drawn by any fairy or other invisible or supernatural agent end quote. You can see here that the priest is trying hard to describe something is totally outside his experience or that of his readers. He's so amazed that it seems like magic. Other authors would grapple with the railways, including Dickens, Thomas Hardy, George Eliot, and many others. All have them in their books, even discussing the philosophy of them. You can imagine how the coach companies and canal owners felt about all this. It is an established fact new transport systems can have the effect of breaking up local monopolies, as Timothy Luling said in his paper on railways called Time is Money. For example, in 1831, the Southampton, London and Branch Railway and Docks Company, known as LBRDC, was formed to build a railway line from London to Southampton. The company name was mercifully changed to the shorter and more famous London and South Western Railway, L and SWR. I know the abbreviation still sounds like a local radio station, but a bit less of a mouthful. The Basingstoke Canal Company tried instead 
to get support for a canal-linking scheme of their own, to get the jump on the railway, but didn't succeed, so grudgingly stood aside and dropped their opposition. The rail route should have directly connected Kingston-upon-Thames outside London to the line, but the powerful stagecoach company lobby in Kingston prevented it, much to the chagrin of modern rail travellers. Crucially, the line would connect Woking, Winchester and my hometown, which at that point was a sleepy agrarian town called Basingstoke. This brings another problem with changing the landscape with the railways into sharp focus. A line linked places considered important in the early 19th century. Some of those places changed rapidly, but other places that we consider substantial or important today weren't linked back then as they weren't important at all. Nothing south of Southampton was linked. Why go to Bournemouth or Poole in the 1830s and 1840s? Today, though, Bournemouth is a major coastal holiday resort, so has to have a line. Basingstoke in the 1840s seemed tiny. But not only did it get the London line, it got linked to the world-famous Great Western Railway, GWR, with a line coming in from Reading. That can't have been great for L and SWR, who were in competition with GWR. And some of the track layouts today reflect this complicated rivalry and bedevil modern train travel. Lewing reminds us that the cost-benefit analysis of railways is far, far more complicated than a simple how much does it cost to build them. The politics of canals and building railways was going to get vicious and dirty during the Victorian era. Actual creation of the railways is highly disruptive to the UK macroeconomy and also to nearly every town and business in the country. Monopolies would get challenged and some rich people stood to lose out to the railways whilst others stood to make a lot of money. Just judging what railway should get money and be built was hard for the Victorians since they didn't have the benefit of hindsight or computer analysis. Mistakes were made, and many railway companies went bust. The level of corruption was astonishing. Bad surveyors who weren't qualified, businessmen with dodgy accounts, MPs on the take, lords using their immense power and privilege to change routes, I'll cover all that in detail in our next main episode, including some larger-than-life characters. Once the building began, the effect was enormous. Cuttings were dug, sidings put up, vast boreholes dug to drain the land using massive steam pumps. Lines didn't always go in the best routes. Many were commercial ventures for industrial towns, they were planned to optimise freight, not provide national benefits. I want to emphasise that the Victorians were not building a national rail network. It was very laissez-faire free market. 
they were usually building individual lines at the start of the railway building era. As the 1840s went on, there were at least attempts at regional consolidation. Worse, many lines went through areas where the urban poor lived. Unlike a duke, they couldn't get a line routed around their house. The landlord might get compensation, but for a lot of the poor, well, they were simply thrown out onto the street to make way for the railways. These demolitions could be on a huge scale. One proposed scheme suggested knocking down 4,000 London houses and relocating 32,000 people. Remember, as a proportion of the population of London at the time, that was an even higher amount than the bare number makes you think. But before you look immediately horrified, it is worth remembering just what some of the Victorian city slums were like. Let's have a look at the then famous Ager Town in London. If you are familiar with London, I'd bet you a guinea you've never heard of it today. Quote, Where the impressive Gothic-style St Pancreas station now sits, there once was a vibrant neighbourhood, teeming with life and activity. Ager Town was located north of central London, on land owned by the ecclesiastical commissioners in the parish of St Pancreas. Ager Town was developed in the early 1840s on a wedge of land sandwiched between the railway lines leading to King's Cross Station and Euston Station. It stood on land that would be ultimately taken over to build the St Pancreas Railway Station in 1866. Bordered to the east by King's Cross Railway Station, Ager Town was bordered on the south and west by Somers Town, built on the land of Lord Somers. The population of Somers Town was described as low, working class, and in danger of contaminating nearby, more respectable populations. But the people of Somers Town could take heart in knowing they were still better off than their neighbours in Ager Town. Ager Town, as it was labelled, was what the early Victorians saw as the foulest North London development of all. End quote. That's from a paper called Mapping Poverty in Ager Town, Economic Conditions Prior to the Development of St Pancras Station in 1866. The horror over conditions in Ager Town was universal. Newspapers, sermons, parliamentary reports, the Health Committee, all condemned it as the worst in London. A shanty town where the rubbish swept from Oxford Street was dumped. Everything was substandard. People rented a patch of land cheap and could throw up whatever they wanted on it. So the poor moved in and put up shanties. Again, quoting from the same article, quote, The Builder newspaper wrote in 1853, No words would be too strong to describe the miserable conditions of this disgraceful location. The houses have been planted here without any thought of drainage or of 
any other arrangement necessary for the hell. In addition to its apparent poor location, the buildings developed within Agertown were also substandard. Many were mere hovels, erected by journeymen bricklayers and carpenters on Sundays and in other spare time, and were inhabited for the ground flooring was laid. The vicar of St Pancreas said that the houses were more fitted for the occupation of wild beasts than for human beings, and the area is one of most extreme and almost unmitigated poverty. End quote. It was so terrible that even Dickens noticed it and wrote an article on it in his weekly journal. He actually lived nearby at one point in Camden and used Agertown as a model for his description of the slums in A Christmas Carol. I'll pause and say, if your slum has been voted the worst slum by the Victorians, and Dickens think you are in need of his help, then you really, really are living in a shithole. I'm not exaggerating. The slum didn't have plumbing or sanitation, so it would have been utterly polluted with human refuse, sewage and rubbish. But we need to be a bit careful here. Because the Victorians gave an area terrible reputation, you can't assume there's no exaggeration whatsoever involved. This was an era when the rich and poor lived in near total isolation from each other, and the rich sometimes went on slum tours. Evidence from the census shows that there was a wide range of employment types in Agar, and even the quality of housing and standard of living varied wildly within the area. A huge number were labourers or casual market trainers. There were poor charmen and women, plus costermongers. But there was at least one pharmacist and a lot of piano makers who worked at a nearby piano factory, which was making use of the Camden Canal. There were cabinet makers, carpenters, a portrait artist, an attendant at the British Museum, and a family who made precision mathematical instruments. Still, for the most part, it was a grindingly poor area, and the open spaces of the land invited further refuse and sewage dumping. The location alone almost guaranteed poverty, sandwiched in between two railway lines, a gas works, a graveyard, and the inevitable workhouse. It was always going to be awful. One block received the worst possible poverty classing in Booth's famous poverty survey. Also bear in mind, Victorian surveys were often heavy on statistics, but failed to capture the human experience of people or the community dynamics. So no matter how awful it sounds to us, the area of the city would be pulled down and the poor evicted for a railway station, you can immediately see how no sensible planner or politician would want to stop clearance. The problem really was actually how the poor were treated by the clearances, rather than the clearance itself. I picked out Agertown 
just to highlight the enormous impact of the railways, how they changed the landscape, not just in the countryside, but in the cities. As usual, Dickens' journalistic eye noticed the chaos and disruption of building a railway as he sets out in one of his best novels, Dombey and Son, chapter 6, quote, The first shock of a great earthquake had, just at that period, rent the whole neighbourhood to its centre. Traces of its course were visible on every side. Houses were knocked down, streets broken through and stopped, deep pits and trenches dug in the ground, enormous heaps of earth and clay thrown up, buildings that were undermined and shaking, propped by great beams of wood. Here, a chaos of carts, overthrown and jumbled together, lay topsy-turvy at the bottom of a steep unnatural hill. There, confused treasures of iron, soaked and rusted, in something that had accidentally become a pond. Everywhere were bridges that led nowhere, thoroughfares that were wholly impassable, babel towers of chimneys wanting half their height, temporary wooden houses and enclosures in the most unlikely situations, carcasses of ragged tenements and fragments of unfinished walls and arches, and piles of scaffolding and wildernesses of bricks and giant forms of cranes and tripods straddling above nothing. There were a hundred thousand shapes and substances of incompleteness wildly mingled out of their places, upside down, burrowing in the earth, aspiring in the air, mouldering in the water and unintelligible as any dream. Hot springs and fiery eruptions, the usual attendants on earthquakes, lent their contributions of confusion to the scene. Boiling water hissed and heaved within dilapidated walls, whence also the glare and roar of the flames came issuing forth, and mounds of ash blocked up rights of way and wholly changed the law and custom of the neighbourhood. End quote. If any of my listeners live in Boston, perhaps they remember the Big Dig from 1991 to 2006, with all of its disruption, cost overruns and delays. Well, then you might have some sympathy with those Victorian builders and the neighbourhoods affected. Even on a technical level, there were lots of challenges to overcome. What size of gauge? How to regulate the steam? How do you build a system of tracks where trains travel and not hit each other? I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that safety was patchy at best. This was partly as people were still learning just how to put railways together. And partly it was down to the fact that railways were being built by private companies with little to no regulatory oversight in an age that didn't particularly like state intervention at the best of times. The Duke of Cleveland had specifically bought his Radby estate to be a countryside retreat away 
from the industrial north and the railways. He was mortified when some railway commissioners turned up to say that a new railway line from Bernard Castle to Darlington was going to pass right through his beloved estate, and he didn't get a say in it. On the bright side, this was the infamous Stockton to Darlington Railway, the first railway in the world for passengers. It opened in 1825 and ran for 22 miles. The first trip in 1825 was 12 wagons of coal and flour, 6 of guests and 14 wagons full of workmen. The initial journey of just under 9 miles took 2 hours. However, during the final descent into the Stockton Terminus, speeds of 15 miles an hour were reached. That sounds slow to us, but honestly, for the 1820s, it was staggering. Not so much for the speed, which was slightly under a man's running speed. It was more that it could sustain this speed for hours with enormous loads, as long as the coal kept flowing. More crucially, this top speed got higher and higher, extremely quickly. For comparison, the top speed of a horse at a gallop is on average 25 to 30 miles an hour, with the fastest ever recorded speed of 55 miles an hour. Straight away, the railways were soon giving people access to a galloping horse that didn't get tired and ran hours. Overall, it is possible to see how the railways have a huge benefit to the Victorian economy, but it is difficult to study historically since few economists are professional historians. There is a danger of them failing to have sufficient understanding of the time period they are talking about when attempting to apply their generalised approaches to errors that they barely understand the events in, let alone a complex series of cultural, political and other factors that historians deal with using highly specialised knowledge and methodologies. There are real difficulties in doing the cost-benefits analysis of a railway. Say a person travels by train and does the journey in four hours instead of two days. The cost was, let's call it, ten shillings for this example. If they were going to travel by horse, and it would have taken two days at a cost of 40 shillings when food and lodging was factored in, then surely the railway had a benefit of one day and 16 hours to the traveller, plus 30 shillings saved. So, clear case that the railway has benefited the traveller? Well, maybe. Was the traveller always going to make that journey, though? Supposing he only makes the journey because the railway means his business partner now lives in a town further away and he has to make a journey he would never have made before the railway. He's actually down four hours and ten shillings. Ah, but it can get worse. What if the journey was one he would have been happy to make on the horse 
and the exercise he got horse riding kept him healthy. But commuting by train increases his weight, leading to an early heart attack. What if the horse journey was one he was going to make, stopping at an inn, buying wine, and enjoying a night of dubious company, and catching syphilis? That would eventually kill him years later, meaning he leaves an inheritance to a niece who goes on to found a local college with the money, educating people who would never have had access to the college. How do you factor any of that into any kind of analysis? This is a nightmare of butterflies flapping their wings, and it introduces a level of uncertainty and challenge to any analysis. But a lot of the time, especially in the early days, the railways were more expensive than travelling by coach or canal. So that means some people were willing to spend more money to travel faster. But why? A lot of things aren't as time-sensitive as we might believe. Milk might be, so it needs to be transported quickly. Other transactions aren't as time-sensitive. In this case, the traveller is valuing the time saved more than the money earned and spent on a train. This means we have to factor in leisure time as a valuable asset that someone is willing to pay to preserve. Then there's what's called travel equivalence and comfort. How do you value those? Interestingly, a Royal Commission in 1865 found that first-class rail was equal to first-class post-chase travel, second-class equivalent to travelling by stagecoach, and third-class with travelling on top of a stagecoach. I'll just Briefly explain about coach travel here for a sec, because Hollywood and TV have not been good with the accuracy of these. Most of the gentry owned private horses or carriages and some kind of coach or buggy or wagon, various designs. But these were ruinously expensive. Lots of people wouldn't own a coach or a carriage, but wanted to travel and would therefore pay for the passage. So far, so straightforward. Just like today, there were different kinds of service. The post-chase was a private hire carriage. It carried one to three people and was privately hired, basically like hiring a car from a car rental. They were light, with the drivers sitting on a horse at the front and the footman sitting at the rear. They were almost always painted yellow. According to one of my sources, this was because it was cheap paint. So could be the reason that many modern taxis are yellow. This was the top of the line experience and it cost a lot. The main alternative was the coach. These were larger, heavier, slower and the driver sat at the front. These were the main kind of regular mail service that took paying passengers, usually on a schedule. The less well-off passenger could sleep on the roof, although some accounts mention that the violent lurching of travelling in the carriage, combined with smoke from passengers' pipes and chewing tobacco, plus the cramped seats, 
meant that a lot of gentlemen preferred the top of the roof, especially in good weather. This relied on a network of coaching inns, horse dealers and skilled carriage makers and so on. You can imagine that they were as thrilled with the competition from railways as the canal owners were. Some of the mail coach journeys and horse changes were astonishingly efficient and the mailmen on the coach sometimes went through hell to make sure the mail got through with many dying in the process. All around the coaches, industries like the coaching inns had sprung up. One famous inn was called the Feathers. It had stabling for a hundred horses and a selection of beer, ale and cider, plus ten bedrooms. The whole industry flourished and was well known. Dickens mentions it countless times. In the Pickwick papers, Sam Weller's father, Tony Weller, was a well-described archetype of a coachman. Happy, carefree, but not overly responsible as a father, or particularly concerned with the future, though he was wise enough to warn his son, Sam, about the dangers of marrying. But Dickens was sketching the coach and the coachman at the dying part of their age. The railways would lead to their inevitable decline, Carriages would still exist throughout the Victorian era, especially in the towns in the form of cabs, as local connections to the railway stations and as heavy goods wagons. But they simply couldn't compete with the iron roads. Overall, we know that more people travelled once the railways became a national staple, and this would eventually lead to the growth of the seaside holiday and also fundamentally altering the economy with the availability of fresh goods inland. But it is very risky to go to an individual level and say, well, Lady Fitzsimmons decided to holiday in Brighton because of the railways. You would need to know a lot about Lady Fitzsimmons and her habits first. The same applies to other industries. Really the term that best applies to these railways and the changes they brought is interlinked complexity. It's not to say you can't do an economic analysis of the early railways. Some good economists can. And there are some fascinating things we can learn. I'd just say be very cautious about articles by economists and especially journalists saying railways were cheaper or faster or whatever in the past, or they cost more or less. What you're really usually reading in these is the journalist just snatching one statistic on one particular line or instance. The past can be murky, and it's perfectly possible a particular railway line failed because individual A turned out to be an incompetent engineer or dodgy financial speculator rather than because the line itself would not have been an economic success. When looking at history, you have to account for the intangibles and irrationalities of humans. Sometimes people just want to tie themselves to a future possibility, whether it is rational or not. A town might have wanted a railway, because all the fashionable towns had them, 
not because it made sense for them on a strictly economic level. One good tool for evaluating railways is to look at the financing. Since Victorian bankers were as focused on returns as the modern ones, so they tended to be very careful about where they invested. But remember, like all capitalists, they were focused on profit returns on capital invested, not on the success of the business venture in question. I'm mentioning all this here so you don't fall for the myth that the Victorian railways were all following a master plan that would lead to economic benefits for all and that everyone would automatically want to use them. There was a lot of irrationality that went into planning routes and a lot of financial speculation. Military and colonial railways are easier to analyse in many ways. Since the military were pretty clear in what they wanted built, why and who was going to use it, the typical calculation was moving troops and supplies more quickly, efficiently and securely to places that needed either an army to fight or to garrison. They could be a premier tool of imperial control as well as an economic benefit to some. But you can see just how disruptive the railways really were. And as with everything, there were costs as well as benefits. There was even a weird, almost evolutionary dead-end experiment of classic coaches being fitted with railway wheels and running on tracks pulled by horses like the Stockton and Darlington railway coaches, costing one and a half pence inside or one pence outside per mile. So a trip of 20 miles would perhaps be 20 pence. That was a day's labour for some, but economically viable for others. The Victorians clearly knew what an enormous impact the railways were having. They wouldn't have set up a select committee in 1854, or a Royal Commission in 1867, for instance, to study the social impact of them if they weren't aware of the changes. The Commission heard plenty of evidence that a lot of third-class travellers simply wouldn't have made the journey without the railway. I've read an extremely detailed economics paper that pulls together a breadth taking amount of evidence, far too much to go into here without spending hours. The amazing conclusion was that the time the railways saved third-class travellers was in the hundreds of millions of hours across major and minor routes. That massive energy breakthrough from coal was being translated into speed and power which was being used to save staggering amounts of time. No civilization in history had ever achieved this before. Imagine the opportunities it presented. The number of miles of track leapt from 250 miles in 1838 up to 1,800 miles worth in 1843. Just Five years later, 
Let's go back to the example of Basingstoke, which I mentioned earlier. Its coaching industry was devastated by the arrival of the railways. The last coach line went bankrupt in the 1840s. Most of the coaching inns went under, with many being seized and auctioned for debt. Some staff even committed suicide. But the railway created a new opportunity, just not immediately. The town actually began to lose workers as people moved away. The economy declined. It seemed the new railway was actually going to destroy the town. As the Victorian era progressed, though, coal, industrial goods and fertilisers in bulk were brought in by rail in vast quantities. The farming industry boomed, and along with it, the town's brewing industry. I've wanted to drop one of my favourite local history facts about Basingstoke into the show for ages, and I'm shameless going to take this opportunity. The town became so good at brewing that the Salvation Army arrived en masse in 1880 to save the locals from the evils of drink. The brewers reacted rather badly until... (coughs) and there was much grumbling and hostility between the evangelicals pushing the temperance movement and the locals in the brewing trade. Matters came to a head in the notorious incident of 27th of March 1881 when the violent armed clash between the evangelicals and brewers got out of hand resulting in the magistrates first reading the riot act and then having to call in the army to restore order. Parliament was enraged and the press called the town Barbarous Basingstoke. Local magistrates knew exactly who to blame, though, dismissing charges against the brewers, saying, quote, Until this body, known as the Salvation Army, was formed here, the number of summonses which had come before the magistrates was comparatively unknown. They now had a large number of assault cases to hear. The army perfectly well knew their conduct was leading to disturbances in the town. End quote. So the Salvation Army were less than popular with the locals, and Basingstoke kept brewing its local beer. But along with brewing, bootmakers and traders, including the now world-famous Thomas Burberry, and a new school and corn exchange all blossomed. Factories were more viable and engineering firms opened. The population went from 2,589 in 1801 to 4,263 in 1853, then slowdown, then boom time. Employment on the railway in Basingstoke went from 35 jobs in the 1850s over 300 by the time Victoria died. Incidentally, in modern times, high London property prices have forced many people like me out of the capital 
two towns like Basingstoke, again commuting by rail to seek work in the capital, like many a Victorian professional, leading to a modern boom in Basingstoke, and further increases in the population to over 170,000. There's more. I know, aren't railways awesome? The other great thing about railways that Victorian politicians began to realise in the 1840s was that the more frequent the trains, the more people benefited. That's obvious to us, because we are used to moving at speed. The Victorians weren't. And trains could leave at almost any time. Coaches typically departed from coaching inns early in the morning to get to the next inn or their destination in the evening. Only rich travellers who went post-chase, or people walking, could choose their departure time, and the walkers, they took a lot longer. Journey times were slowed as trains had to stop for water and coal, or to let passengers relieve themselves or eat, and connecting lines often didn't connect at conveniently located railway stations. Sometimes two stations were built quite a way apart and required travel across town to make the connection to continue your journey. I think this is a good point to remind you that yes, England is small, but not so small that walking places, even riding, didn't take ages. I come across this attitude a lot from people in huge countries. They naively compress the travel times in smaller countries without taking the terrain and other things into account. There's that infamous scene in the 1990s Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves movie with Kevin Costner. When they arrive in Dover, on the southeast coast of England, and Robin says to his companion Azim, Don't worry, we will be feasting in my father's castle by nightfall. Since that castle was in Nottingham, that's over 200 miles away, meaning to walk would have taken 72 hours. So whilst England is small, you can see this big enough to make a train network a really good idea. Now though, we've had a dive into the impact the coming of the railways had, how much of a shock they were to the landscape, the cities, the economy, to the jobs and the culture, and much more. In our next main episode, we will continue our series on the early English railways by looking at the practicalities of building a railway, and some details on the process involved. Okay, I hope you've enjoyed today's show. I know it's been a long one, but railways are a fundamental Victorian topic and I'm delighted that we're going to be covering them. I hope you enjoy it with me. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook on the Facebook page or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care and bye for now.